Welcome to Lift Their Voices, a podcast series presented by Roots of American Music in partnership with Evergreen Podcast. This podcast series seeks to celebrate important historical figures from marginalized communities and highlight local artists. Roots of American Music, also known as Rome, is a nonprofit established in 1999 and based in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Rome integrates music and education in Northeast Ohio to create vibrant community through art and vibrant art through community. More information on Rome and ways for you to support can be found at rootsofamericanmusic.org. Special thanks to Ohio Arts Council and Cuyahoga Arts and Culture for their support. So, Nathan Paul Davis, you're a pretty vibrant dude. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your own connection to art and community, how those things work? Art and community, that's such a fascinating question. Um, I'm going to use Ty, he's in the audience, as an example. So, Ty, you went to Berklee College of Music when you were 18. James, you went to New School of Music when you were 18. And I remember visiting James in New York and all these things, and everybody was so excited to be around the musicians in New York and around that energy. I had a completely different mindset. My mindset was, in order, if you have an issue with your community, if you don't like it, or if you feel so led to leave because it has nothing for you, you're either the type of person that goes around with your hand out, looking, what can this city do for me? Or you're like, JFK, don't ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for it. But I say that in the community. So I say, if you leave, you have to leave your area better than you found it. Unfortunately, a lot of people have failed to do that. So some of us are step, are left sticking behind, trying to build it up and, it, and build it up to an extent that it doesn't really need to build up because it's just a lack of support and consistency, you know? So yeah, so my connection with the community is, yeah, leave it better than how you found it. Everybody talks, but we know that life is a verb, it's an action. You know, one of the things that we're thinking a lot about in, in how we think about music, is it like something to preserve? Is it something to create? Could you position yourself in relationship to those things, that the kind of music as a verb and music as something that is more forward-looking and backward-looking? I know that you kind of have connections to sort of uh, Motown-esque projects. and Oh, for sure, like Wesley Brighton and yeah, Honey yeah, yeah. Tones and all that. And you do your composing, and then, you know, how much time are you spending learning standards and how much time? No time at all. <laughs> how much time am I spending working on somebody else's voice? None. I'm spending all, every time I spend learning a new song by somebody else, first thing I'm thinking is, wow, I could just be writing my own song. So that, that answers that. The, uh, what was the other question? I mean, I guess, so just tell us a little bit about your compositional process. Compositional process? I've done in front of my students. I've written with Ty. I think two new songs got written tonight. I will give you a 30 second example because music speaks louder than words. Okay, so that's the melody, it's already written.
That's how I write. <laughs> That's it. All right. All right. It's just like nobody plans conversations. If you speak English, you're already fluent in it. Like, how long we've we been speaking English? I've been speaking English since I was maybe two, three years old. You know what I'm saying? Like, by the time you're five or seven, you're not thinking about it. Music is as natural to me as scratching my toe when it itches. So, so one question for you. Um, I'm going to need to do some Baldwin references here as we talk. So one thing Baldwin talked about when he was writing, um, you know, he was really inspired by Bessie Smith in some of his writings. Bessie Smith, yes. And one thing that he talked about was how, particularly with Backwater Blues, there was, uh, I think the, his quote was, a fantastic kind of understatement. Well, what's interesting about that when you talk about Bessie Smith Blues, this is around the time when minstrel shows in vaudeville was still very popular. And what's interesting about that is during that time, you don't see a lot of famous black singers or, or stars because at that time, racist America was still very much threatened by black men. So you see a lot of blues women, some of the first really big, important um, artists singing singing blues during, during that time. So backwater blues, I, I guess it's just, the women were kind of representing the community at the time. They were very important. Not sure if I answered your question, but that is what came to mind. Well, in your own work, how do you think about those questions of understatement and overstatement? So Aquarius Lo-Fi DZ, <laughs> that's maybe a more understated project. Is that, oh, okay, yeah, for so, sure. So I think tonight, I, we maybe saw you a little bit more on the other side of, on the more overstated well, side. Well, yeah. if I can be totally transparent with you, lo-fi lo music is low-hanging fruit. Um, and I, I just saw it personally as, of course, I'm not going to dummy down the music, but for me, the genre choice in and of itself is not very demanding. Um, so I... Aquarius Lo-Fi Deezy, I kind of just chose because I feel like it would be, I could still have fun with it, not overthink it, and it'd be accessible um, to people. I'm trying to meet people halfway. I know how weird my music's been for a long time, but I figured out if you play energy and not notes, and you got good energy, you can play anything you want, and it translates. Not always the case on record. Works better live, but...
quote I found of you just run on the internet. Oh, as, as you said, when the Admirable started, I was a little more trained on how to not be a complete weirdo. Um, could, you, could you say a little bit about how you're feeling about being a weirdo these days? People have always called me a weirdo. I don't, I don't actually buy into that, but since so many people identify me with that word, I appease them. Just how a lot of people call me Nate, but my first name's Nathan Paul, the abbreviation would be Nathan. Fine, Nathan's too hard to say, say Nate, word. Say the question again for me, please. Where are you these days on the idea of being a weirdo? A weirdo? I don't really necessarily, I identify with it sometimes. There are some things, quality traits I see in other people that I have, then when I see them do it and know that I do, I was like, wow, that was strange. <laughs> wow. So I was like, but I do that. Mm, okay. Wow. But uh, outside of that, um, in a music context and everything, I don't think it's healthy or good to not be weird. Weird is another word for new, unique, unseen, unexpected. So <laughs> I guess I'm weird if I'm that. James Baldwin is. Okay, a couple, a couple of y'all. So what I'm gonna do is read one of the first quotes that I heard by James Baldwin that really resonated with me. It goes like this. To be a black man in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in rage almost all the time. I punched a hole through the wall before I came here. All right, moving on. Right? Everybody's journey is individual. If you fall in love with the boy, you fall in love with the boy. The fact that many Americans consider a disease say more about them than it does about homosexuality. Uh, this, he was also uh, a, a very famous author, writer, but he was very controversial because in the 50s, he was openly gay, black, and a writer. Somebody says, do you feel like... Somebody, somebody said, do you feel like you were a... Uh, you know, like you're unfortunate for this. He said, no, I feel like I hit the jackpot. That's how I feel every time, especially when I get a tan. Um, I'm not tall, but black and tan fantasy. Duke Ellington wrote a song about that. He did, thank you for that. Is somebody say something else about James Baldwin? Come on, y'all. No? James Baldwin, y'all. How many people have read anything by James Baldwin? What'd you say? Yo, so how many know about Giovanni's Room? That, he had to publish that overseas because they wouldn't even let him publish it here because what well, was in the 50s when he wrote it, but it got published much later. And wasn't it a love story about two men? And it was very, very controversial. Um, so for me, what I've got from James Baldwin and the relevancy of it is to just really be conscious and aware of who you are, where you are, who's your allies, and who's not your allies. You know, typically I try to encourage people to make them feel better through my music. I don't usually do the typical expected activism. My form of activism is teaching and bringing these teenagers out here and everything and showing them a positive future.
Here's another Baldwin idea. In one of his pieces about being an artist, he states that an artist must cultivate the state of being alone, and other people are alone, but we are not compelled to linger on it. So I guess if you could just talk a little bit about the idea of, I, I guess here more in a general sense of like, what were you up to during the pandemic? Did you make use of some alone time? Well, unless you talk to me on a regular basis or you like came to my house or something, you wouldn't know this, but I mean, I'm alone most of the time before the pandemic. I mean, the way I think and talk, if you talk to me or you run into my students, notice once I get going, I don't stop. It's somewhat erratic. This is low-key a result of having a lot of thoughts and things to say, but nobody really being around to bounce it off of. So for me, during the pandemic, it was normal for me, other than the scare of just, like, dying from something invisible in here. That was pretty terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that was scary. awful. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't leave my... I, I almost didn't leave my room for, like, three months. But uh, that's when I started getting really busy writing. The first song I released during the pandemic was Air Melodies, which I played earlier. And uh, I was just doing my thing. I never really went out the house very much or anything like that. I go, I just go to work and I go home. So the pandemic wasn't that different for me. And I kind of feel sorry for the youth because I had already, my coping mechanisms were well built. By the time the pandemic started, I was in my, you know, early 30s. I had already had a career, original music. So I'm, I wasn't really still finding myself. So for those who are still developing, going through puberty during the pandemic, I, I can't imagine. And they probably won't know what happened until they're 40 mm -hmm. to really be able to process that. But for me, I was chilling, man, to be honest with you. I was just afraid to go outside, but me personally, in my own space, this is a good time. It's a blast. Could you say a little bit about your own formation, your own coming of age as a musician? I don't know, who, who were some early influences on you? You know, we happened to have gone to high school together. That was- That we did, Cleveland yeah. Heights High School, y'all. So some of your own formation, maybe early years? Uh, oh, like my big influences, yeah. Grover Washington Jr. That was my guy. I heard uh, my father had a party at the house and there was no music. And I thought this was, I found it very odd. I was like, your guys talking isn't hitting hard enough for there to not be any music. Mm -hmm. So I put on Wine Light. I was listening through. It was like, boo doo dee dee I played that for the other day, Alice. Armani, you have yet to hear that. But when I heard that track, it was like magic. It looked like, Wine Light sounds like how Cleveland kind of looks if you're optimistic. Yeah. Okay. So I guess one question I have for you, here's another Baldwin quote, is that he, he talks about how, you know, he grew up, his father was a preacher, he was a He preacher. became a preacher at 13. Right. And then he yeah. said that he left the pulpit to preach the gospel. He left the church, but then he was sort of doing things that were related to those early years I and other contexts. I definitely context. relate to that. Is I, there anything about the music in that context? Absolutely. That Everything... You saw, see, she was there. She was in the crowd. She was worshiping. Mm -hmm. This was everything I played tonight was worship music. Maybe a little fried, but you know. Yeah, it's, it's all to me a form of worship music. All of it, no matter what it is, funk, slow or whatever. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm answering the question. This is a lot going on. This is a lot right now, but... It's all just worship music to me. My Oh, from church, my father was a pastor as well. 
And this is something if you take my music history class next year, if I don't make them take it off the schedule, I hate that class. Uh, I was going to say that out loud. But if you take that class, you'll learn that most of black people throughout history have been very influential. Church is at the heart of it. All black colleges started in, in church. That's kind of at the root of foundational black culture. But we live in an age where that's starting to not become a part of black culture. So you would probably say a six-year-old and a 15-year-old relate less than a six, 60 and a 15-year-old have ever related. When I was young and I was around old black people, it was like a source of life. Now it's weird, all these church references and everything that teenagers don't really understand. But my generation, everybody came up on that. So that's a very strong, fundamental part of it. And it's at the very core of everything I do. All right, well, thanks so much for a great evening of music, Nathan. Are you going to bring out any more releases this year? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just released something, Ty Deasy, Tyler Cratchaw, co-producer. What was it, December 6th or 9th? Just put out a little, not Christmas, just winter. Y'all going to have to listen until it stops snowing. And then the next track comes out the first Friday at the beginning of January. It's either January 6th or January 9th. And I'm probably going to put some January 25th on my birthday. I'm an Aquarius. And it's just going to be something every month. It's just going to be a lot. The floodgates are open. You've been listening to Lift Their Voices, a podcast series presented by Roots of American Music in partnership with Evergreen Podcasts. To learn more about Roots of American Music and support our work, please visit rootsofamericanmusic.org. Thanks to our featured artist, Nathan Paul. To learn more about Nathan Paul and listen to his music, please search Nathan-Paul on Spotify. Special thanks to Ohio Arts Council and Cuyahoga County Arts and Culture for their continued support. Today's episode was produced by Morgan McCaskey. It was recorded by Morgan McCaskey and Brian Kennard. Post-production engineering by Dave Douglas. Contains original music by Nathan Paul. I'm your host, George Blake. Thank you for listening. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) Right.